0: Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew and ordinarily you'll find me here in my garden shed recording the Cosmic Shed podcast which explores the way science and storytelling collide. But don't worry you haven't downloaded the wrong thing. This is the Physics World podcast and joining me in the Cosmic Shed today to discuss Physics World's top 10 books of the year are Margaret Harris, Physics World's Reviews Editor and Mateen Girani, Physics World Editor. Margaret and Mateen, welcome to the Cosmic Shed.
1: Thank you.
0: Morning. We are actually genuinely sitting here in the Cosmic Shed, which is actually a shed, as well as being a bit cosmic. So you might hear the odd birds tweeting in the background or a bit of wind. It's black inside. It's like being inside of a, a black hole. We're in a, we're in a Cosmic in a Shed hole. spaceship. I thought it might be... Helpful. Um, probably quite a lot of the listeners know you guys already, but I thought it might be just good to know a little bit about you guys. Do you read an awful lot of books?
1: Yes. I'm as, as Physics World Reviews Editor, I read definitely more than 30 popular science books a year. I mean, those are the books that I've read, you know, more or less in full. If you're talking about books that don't make a review, add another hundred that I've read a few paragraphs or a couple chapters in and thought not worth reviewing or not necessarily not worth reviewing, but not worth reviewing in physics world. And even before like, I got this job, I had a real passion for popular physics writing. That's how I got interested in physics, you know, reading um, A Brief History of Time. when I was a high school student and uh, Lawrence Krauss' uh, Physics of Star Trek.
0: So it was Star Trek first, was it?
1: Uh, I think The Physics of Star Trek was the first book I read, which is weird because... Um, I'm not actually a huge Star Trek fan, oh, but right. I was really interested in the ideas and the I- and you know sort of turning science fiction into science fact and comparing the two.
0: Well, that's what we do here in the Cosmic Shed. So we'll have to get you back for an episode of the Cosmic Shed, Martin. What's what's your background? How did you get here? How did I get here? Mm-hmm. By bike, obviously. I also. came by bike with yeah. Margaret. <laughs> <10.
2: laughs> no, I've been editor of Physics for about ten years, and me and Margaret sit down every month and we look at all the books that come in. Um, as Margaret says, there's a whole heap of them that don't make the cut even to the review stage, and then out of all the reviews that we publish our shortlist is effectively the ones that got a really good review either that we've looked at ourselves or external reviewers liked and then we cut it down to 10 our favorite 10
0: of the year we're going to be discussing four of the books in this podcast and first up is physics on your feet 90 minutes of shame but a phd for the rest of your life by alexander shuskov and dmitry budka
2: dmitry Budker's at the university of california berkeley the other guy Alexander Shushkov is from Harvard University. If you do your physics degree and then you want a research career in physics you do a graduate studies program in the US and the first couple of years are kind of like a master's level and after that you do a PhD but to get through that master's level you have all sorts of assessment and exams and one of the exams is an oral exam where basically you get stuck in a room with an examiner who asks you some really really hard questions orally and you have to sort of think on your feet hence the title of the book
0: Does it have the answers to the questions or is it just the the questions?
2: There's about 60 questions and they've all got the answers but they're not really worked through answers and the whole beauty of the book is that it's a matter of debate how you would actually answer the question so it kind of gives you an inkling of what the answer would be but as with all the physics it's quite open-ended so there are different interpretations, there are different spins you could put on how you would get to the answer and there's not necessarily one right answer and often you're right at the cutting edge of research and there may be several answers that we're
0: not sure about and is it something that I, as a non-physicist, could read and get something out of? Was it really aimed at physicists, this one?
1: It depends on the question. I mean, there are some some questions in there that kind of start out at the sort of high school science level, you know, easing people into uh, answering the question or maybe into a false sense of security. But then it, it, it sort of they sort of develop into more um, difficult questions. The high school physics example is, you know, you've got a glass of water with an ice cube in it. As the ice cube melts, will the level of water go up or go down or stay the same. It's a tricky puzzle, yeah. you know, uh, for particularly someone without a science background, but it is not that difficult physics. Mm. But then the problem builds to more levels and asks you to consider more and more detailed areas of physics, and I think this is really a book for physicists that physicists, um, our audience, will enjoy.
0: Have you both
2: got PhDs? Well, I got mine in, in, in the UK where you don't go through this kind of thing. And, and um, so did
1: I actually Yeah. Oh, you got yours yeah. as well, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: And I, I actually would have hated that kind of exam We had a written exam when I did my degree at Bristol University And I hated it I just um, Actually I wish I'd had this book to sort of, <laughs> sort of get some answers um, <laughs> The one I liked was um, if you have a chicken egg It takes about five minutes to boil But if you had an ostrich egg Which is three times as large in its radius How long would that take to cook? What's the answer? Well the answer is I guess <laughs> So the answer is 45 minutes Because it's, if it's three times as long It's three squared, nine, times that five minutes, forty-five.
0: Which is brilliant, because I've always wondered why we have chicken eggs for breakfast rather than ostrich eggs.
2: 45 minutes, I don't think I want to hang around that long.
0: No. Does the structure of the book work?
2: Well, it's divided into different branches of physics. And I think one of the nice things about the book is actually this idea with physics that you have to love all of physics. It's not necessarily true. There could be different bits of it that you like more than others. You might think, well, I like the questions on geophysics. Maybe I like the medical physics. Maybe I like the quantum stuff. I use an analogy with music. The idea that you like every type of music Mm. isn't true. You might have personal favourites. In the book, you can just flick through... I like that. I don't don't want to really go down that question. This one interests me. So you can just get a really quick overview of different parts of physics. And and actually, sitting in a shed here, there was one question I thought. If you imagine a bucket of water with a hole in it, how fast does the water flow out from that hole? Then, if you assume you put a pipe in the hole, how fast does the water flow out?
0: So what's involved in that question?
2: Basically, the point of it is, I think if you've got a hole, the water flows out at a rate that's proportional to the square root of the height of water. And if you've got a pipe, it flows out in proportion to the height, i.e. faster. But maybe you can try that, Andrew, when, when yeah, you've gone.
0: Absolutely. There's a pond next to Do <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. So you won't get a PhD by reading this book, but it might help you with it. It might, yeah. And our next book is the fantastically titled Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn by Amanda Gefter.
1: This book is first and foremost a book about the deepest questions in theoretical physics. Uh, how the universe began what it's made of what nothing is just going down to the very nature of reality but this book also tells a story of how the author became interested in this kind of thing she was a sort of rebellious teenager didn't like school very much and her father took her out to a chinese restaurant and asked her how would you define nothing and this question sort of sparked this crazy quest that she and her father went on for the next you know sort of 10 15 years trying to find out what physics had to say, modern physics had to say about the nature of the universe. And in this course of this quest, she and her father sort of gate-crashed a scientific conference for the physicist John Wheeler, and eventually Gefter actually became a science journalist, in part as a disguise, so she could continue on this, this continue asking physicists uh, deep questions about the nature of the universe. So it's about her coming-of-age story, it's about her relationship with her father, And it has really personal touch that I think is quite unusual in in scientific writing, in addition to talking about some really fascinating areas of physics.
0: I'm really drawn to this book. Amanda Gefter seems to be coming at things from a very similar angle to to the one I am. I I mean, I created this shed for the very purpose that I could sit here and discuss um, these amazingly complex and fascinating topics with people who genuinely have a great understanding of them. But does it help in the book? Does that personal approach help? you get through these difficult problems.
1: I think it does, because one of the things I like about being a science journalist, and maybe you found that as well with, this, with the Cosmic Shed, is that you get a chance to ask really naive questions of really intelligent people, and sometimes you find out that actually they're not naive. They're, they're these, these apparently stupid questions reveal, actually, we don't really understand what we mean by a, a measurement, say, in quantum mechanics. Um, We don't understand what it means by a a wave function collapsing, and I think sometimes an outsider can get to the heart of these uh, questions quicker maybe, than someone who's gone through uh, extensive training in in a postgraduate programme and years of research, years of being a postdoc and all of that. Sort of more normal development, more normal education for a physicist.
0: Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, Thanks. Celebrating (coughs) my life perfectly there. (laughs) (laughs) Does the book avoid the jargon as well?
1: I think it does something better than avoid the jargon. It introduces the reader to the the terms you need to sort of start talking about... Uh, these deep questions, and although Gafter doesn't have a formal training in physics, she actually knows a whole lot about it, because she spent, you know, the last um, 10-15 years of her life talking to physicists, reading books, really trying to get to grips with it, maybe in a non-mathematical way, but certainly on a very deep level uh, intellectually. You know, physicists, I think, have have a tendency to see the world in terms of equations, and in terms of sort of problems be solved, And that method is really powerful, but sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees. You know, there's a a saying in in physics, you know, sort of shut up and calculate, forget the philosophical stuff, just calculate the the results, use the equations, use quantum mechanics or general relativity or, or whatever area of science you're dealing with and get the answers. And that approach has been hugely successful. Absolutely, it's brought us loads of interesting technology, loads of fundamental insight into the way the universe works. But it has its limitations, and I think some, in some areas of physics, we're starting to sort of see people going back to these philosophical questions and saying, okay, what, what really does make a measurement? You know, how do we, you know, what's it mean for a, a photon to be going through two slits at once, being it is quantum superposition? What's that actually mean? Um, and I think this book kind of taps a little bit into that same spirit
0: so there's a lot of philosophy of science as well as
1: yeah um, I, I did a podcast with amanda gefter on this book earlier this year and she said that to me that she actually thinks she would have been happier studying philosophy of science because these are the questions that really intrigue her But she didn't know it existed so she you know studied creative writing and then had this crazy quest yeah. part-time as a science journalist
2: i suppose there's a difference between understanding physics and contributing to it You can understand it, but it doesn't mean you can actually contribute and make a difference or do some research.
0: I suppose, yeah, I suppose in a way I'll always be trespassing on Einstein's law. And I'll leave the real physics to the physicists. Although, as we find in the third book, that's not always the safest idea. Because the third book is Monsters by Ed Regis. Okay, so the bulk of this book is about the history of airships.
2: And these are the giant gas-filled ships that cruised the skies in the early 20th century. And the books, especially about the guy who invented them, Count Ferdinand of Zeppelin, who lived from 1838 to 1917, and he was obsessed by these airships. Now, these are enormous things, a quarter of a kilometre long. There was, I calculated, there was as much gas in them as 80 Olympic-sized swimming pools, They were wow. huge.
0: Yeah.
2: And he was the, they had this brilliant idea that we could fly around the world in these giant, gas-filled airships and it was a completely mad idea because they were enormous it took 300 men probably all men (laughs) to actually stabilize the thing before you took off and the most famous example was the hindenburg airship that flew from germany to the us in 1937 and famously across the atlantic and it was waiting there about to land film reporters press were there and the thing caught fire people died disaster
1: because these ships were these airships were filled most of them with hydrogen which is ridiculously flammable. I mean, it's it's just an insane idea if you sort of t- take a look at it in the abstract, and yet this the Hindenburg, although the most famous, wasn't by any means the first ship to to literally crash and burn.
2: There had actually been 26 other airships that had either crashed or burned or blew up with the loss of 250 lives. So we tend to think the Hindenburg disaster was the only one, but there'd been so many, and the warning signs were there for years, but people were obsessed with building these things. Partly it was a matter of national pride in Germany that, right, we're going to have this ship, and we're damned if anyone else is going to beat us to... In fact, the British had one as well, and there was an air minister who said, I'm going to fly to India, and it's going to be the safest thing. There won't be any disasters, famous last words. He <laughs> crashed us outside Paris.
1: And the Americans were at it, at it too, and they, they actually did something slightly better, which is to fill their airships with helium because the U.S. had control over a huge fraction of the world's supply of helium. But the thing is, even when you fill it with a nice non-flammable gas, you're still trying to fly a gigantic bag of air, a uh, bag of not air, I guess, around in storms, in winds. And as Mateen said, you know, it takes 300 people just to hold this thing onto the ground before it takes off in, in, in a vaguely controlled fashion. A terrible idea. I think that's Regis's point. He's got this point about... This being a pathological technology.
2: Yeah, he basically defines this as something that is a kind of technology we're obsessed with. And when he says pathological, he he really says four things that define a pathological technology. It has to be really big. And as I said, the airships are the size of a 13-story building. It has to inspire a kind of emotional fixation, he calls it, or a love. And that was certainly true of Count Ferdinand of Zeppelin. He was obsessed by getting this thing off the ground, literally. The third thing is people downplay their risks. They just brush it under the carpet. Let's build another one. And they have to be really, really expensive. And of course, this was really expensive
1: one of the great things about this book is regis is he's a good writer and he's absolutely over the top inventive in he, the ways he sort of denounces the zeppelins you know this is this is not an idea to be pursued this is very much an idea worth abandoning i think is, is one, one one he says. Yeah.
2: isn't it he talks about the dangers of flying and they had a flying manual that was filled with every single eventuality and because there were so many ways that it could go wrong he says flying a zeppelin Quote, approximated a state of continuous de facto emergency. Basically, you had to be on your toes the whole time. But there were some bizarre things, Andrew. There was things like even though the gas was flammable, they had a smoking room on this Zeppelin. <laughs> so you had to go in with your cigarette into this specially special room to smoke your cigarette, which just sounds mad. Yeah. And of course it was, and people died. But there was this obsession, <laughs> we are going to build this, we are going to master the skies, we're going to control this technology, we will do it. You've got to... Admire that determination, I suppose. I mean, the author calls Count Ferdinand of Zeppelin. He was equal parts crackpot, visionary and buffoon. Which is quite a good thing to have on your CV, (laughs) if you're Count Ferdinand.
0: (laughs) But it it, it sounds like a very entertaining book.
1: Yeah, it it is. And he does give a few other examples of pathological technologies. And the one that really caught my eye, and I think physicist readers will particularly appreciate is something called Project Ploughshare. Now, this is an idea that developed in the U.S. in the mid-20th century to, believe it or not, to use atomic weapons and then later nuclear weapons in civil engineering projects. So carving out new canals, new harbors, cuts for railways, whatever. Sorry, with
0: with nuclear weapons?
1: With nuclear weapons. (laughs) What? And this project ran for years in development. In development. And it? it spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to develop this totally nutty idea. It was the brainchild of Edward Teller, who was the sort of father of the nuclear weapons, um, the hydrogen bomb in the U.S. And there's a great scene in the book where um, Regis describes what happened when a group of U.S. government officials went to a town meeting in, uh, I think, northern Alaska, which was the sort of prime location for having a brand-new ice-free harbor. And they had this meeting with, with members of the community, these native Alaskans living there, and the idea was, you know, the government guys, they'd made this this public relations film in which that was meant to sort of show how wonderful this would be. And in the middle of this public relations film was basically a mock-up nuclear explosion happening right in these people's best fishing grounds. <laughs> and of course the audience was appalled! Yeah. I mean, they went nuts! Yeah. This is a stupid idea! <laughs> but... The level of not realizing this was, was stupid. This was a great, but again, it was, it's a pathological technology. It had captured the imagination of these these top scientists. It was going to be hugely expensive. It was going to be, of course, enormously risky and hazardous to human health and animal health and any any other health. And it was going to cost a lot of money. So it, it absolutely met the criteria of a pathological technology.
0: They're not deliberately thinking, oh, this is going to kill lots of people. Let's do this.
1: Well, it wouldn't necessarily have killed lots of people. They would have one of the reasons they were thinking about doing this in a remote corner of Alaska is there are not that many people living there, and I think they would have moved people out during the actual n- nuclear explosion. Hmm. The problem is afterwards, when you've got you know your best <laughs> fishing grounds contaminated, you know the plant life, all this, all these isotopes of radioactive isotopes sort of flitting around the place. Yeah. And uh, in fairness, they didn't know as much about that then as we do now, but it was still a stupid idea. But you
0: can kind of, you know, I, I want to give them some credit. And it's sort of, you know, they've invented these bombs, but they don't want them to be used for that. So they want, they're trying to find a peaceful, you know, yeah. and they're de- determined to find that. So they'll spend an awful lot of money and an awful lot of time and effort on something that really, if they thought about it, do you think they could have known?
1: Is is it's a classic example of if you've got a really big hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah. And they had this, you know, to them marvelous new device that yes, okay, you know, there's mild possibility but causing a complete nuclear apocalypse, but whatever. But we can turn this into this this really wonderful, useful technology, peaceful technology.
2: Thankfully they never actually did it, so no. we can um Rest in peace that it never got off the ground. But it rumbled on till the mid-70s
1: yeah. before it was
0: finally cancelled. It's amazing, isn't it? It's an idea that's sort of come back a little bit because I was watching something the other day about terraforming Mars by using nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, and, and actually one of the other technologies, uh, pathological technologies, just talks about is um, interstellar travel. You know, proposals not to go terraform Mars. He you, you know, thinks that's more in the realms of possibilities, but any of these ideas... You know, the idea of putting a group of humans on a ship and then just sort of sending them out, you know, that's gonna make a huge waste of money. It's gonna kill all those people, quite possibly because you've got all sorts of hazards in, in interstellar travel and it's a but yet yeah, it's a big idea. It captures people's imagination. There will be people listening to this podcast probably, who think, yeah, that's so great, we should be totally be spending spending money on that, because, you know, if we, if we don't explore the stars, we're denying our destiny. The other example of pathological technology, which I think is the weakest example in the book, but it's still an interesting topic, is something called the Superconducting super collider, a proposed sort of next-generation particle accelerator, particle collider, to study basically all the things that the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is currently studying, but this was a U.S.-based project. It was going to be built in a um, uh, uh, sort of empty cotton field outside Dallas, Texas. And they did do a, quite a lot of work on it. They spent a couple billion dollars, um, dug 20-some kilometers of tunnel, and then the project was canceled. And Regis claimed that this was a pathological technology because it sort of inspired um, you know, lots of people to say this is really amazing. It was big. It cost a lot of money. Where it falls down is that nobody died and nobody was ever going to die in this. It wasn't on the scale of Project Plowshare or interstellar travel or um, certainly not the, the, the airships in the Hindenburg. So that, that, that I think, was probably the weakest part of that book.
0: And So where did that fail but, but the Large Hadron Collider at CERN worked?
1: Well, that's actually uh, kind of discussed in, in part in the next book, which is Tunnel Visions by Michael Reardon, Lillian Hoddeson, and Adrian Kolb who are three science historians based in the uh, US. Um, A couple of them have been involved in Fermilab, which is the US flagship particle accelerator. So this book goes into forensic detail about why the superconducting supercollider, the SSC, failed. The authors identify sort of five reasons for why it didn't succeed. Uh, One was that this this collider sort of got its start in the 1970s, and in the mid-1980s, they started breaking ground to construct it. And it was killed off finally in 1993 uh, when Congress basically said, we're not spending any more money on this. And I think a lot of us nowadays, the impression I got was this, this was a case of oh, those nasty politicians, they don't understand scientists, They're science are a bunch of Philistines, You know why have you denied us the chance to explore the fundamentals of the universe? And that—you know that's an argument, but the end of the Cold War made it difficult to fund this type of really big science project, escalating costs due to a whole range of mismanagement problems and also scientific challenges that were, hadn't been anticipated. They picked an empty field in Texas to build it rather than building it near Fermilab, where they could have benefited from local expertise and that decision was at least partly political this was it was decided on in just just as george bush the first uh, was being elected he was of course uh, had been from texas the whole rhetoric around the superconducting super collider um by both the physicists who were trying to get it built and the, the politicians who kind of acted as advocates was that this was a u.s national project It was a matter of of american pride that the u.s stay at the forefront of particle physics, and I think that was probably helped it get funded, but it also meant that it was made it really hard to sell this project to international partners. And so when things started to go wrong, as I think they will almost inevitably do in a big enough project, there was no other country had a stake in helping it go right. And that is contrasted, I think, with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which also had some cost overruns and also had a, a catastrophic failure of its magnets uh, shortly after it turned on. but. There were so many different groups behind it that were invested in it succeeding that I think that helped it, it to succeed where the SSC had failed.
2: To be honest, I think if there's any budding science writers out there who want to write about the superconducting supercollider, don't bother, because this book has it, everything in there right. unless you want to do a sort of second-hand version of what they've done. If you want to know about what went wrong or we'll right, it's in that book, and you're not going to beat it in terms of the coverage of depth.
0: And it, it seems like there's an awful lot to be learnt from the book as well in terms of getting these big projects done. I was at a talk the other day, it was the first annual Colin Pillinger uh, Memorial Lecture, and they were talking about um, ESA's plans to get back to the Moon. Um, and, of course, they're not ESA's plans to get back to the moon. They're ESA's plans with the rest of the space agencies around the world. And that spirit of collaboration, which is something that we've seen with CERN that works here, I think it's just something to celebrate, particularly with the political situation in the world at this particular moment. It's great that the scientists can work together on these big projects.
2: I mean, I really do think that's one of the big beauties of science. Sport is another wo- area where people work together, and I think science is um, also equally good. And there's a fascinating project in the Middle East to build a synchrotron, a light source, bringing middle east nations together and that's fantastic there's another project to build bring african nations together with a, a similar light source so i think you're right international collaboration is fantastic also if you're a scientist you get to travel the world because you, you've got to go to these very very important conferences with other people mm-hmm. around the world that's the beauty of science it gives you an opportunity to travel mm-hmm. but yeah, i think you're right
0: international collaboration on a peaceful level What a great force for good in the world that is. Well, there are just four of the ten fantastic books on this year's Physics World's Book of the Year shortlist. We haven't discussed the other six here on the podcast, but they are just as worthy of your time, and you can find the full list on the Physics World website. We do need a winner, though, and Margaret, who is it?
1: Well, the winner, after some debate, is Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn by Amanda Gefter. This is one of the best books about theoretical physics that I've ever read. It also, because our criteria for um, winning the book of the year, is that a book needs to be well-written, obviously, interesting to a physics ob- audience, again, obviously, and also novel. And by novel, we mean either that they've picked a different topic, that it hasn't been covered much in popular physics writing, or that they've taken a, a, an older topic, a common topic, and explored it in a totally different way. Amanda Gafter has done that. A lot of people have written books by cosmology. But... I don't think I've ever read a book about cosmology or indeed any other area of physics that had such a personal element to it. Gefter put a lot of herself and a lot of her personal story into this writing, and that's a risk because, you know, there's some people who maybe won't warm to her personality or will think, oh, why am I hearing about her relationship with her father? I want to get back to the physics. But she really weaves these things together so that if you're open to that, you kind of see that all these things start to relate to each other, and that's really unusual in popular physics writing. The book is particularly good at treading this this fine line between entertaining the reader and educating them there's a famous saying from stephen hawking that he was told by his publisher that each equation he put into the book would have the sales and so he didn't put any or you know, only like two equations into a brief history of time there aren't very many equations in trespassing on einstein's lawn either but i think the rationale that gefter had is different from stephen hawking's and i think a little bit more interesting and i asked her what it was like to write about such a mathematical subject as theoretical physics without actually using mathematics or having any formal physics education. I think we can all agree that you can't do physics without knowing the math. Um, but then the question is, okay, can you understand physics without the math? And and I've come to learn that I think the answer to that is is yes. You know, when you translate from mathematical equations to English, you know, which is what science writers do, there's just not a one-to-one correspondence. So inevitably some specificity is lost in that translation, right? There's no question about that. But the question is how much is lost? And what I was looking for as a reader and then what I tried to eventually provide as a writer was sort of this sweet spot between the math and the metaphor where, you know, you're speaking in English, it's understandable, but there's still real content to that.
0: Well, congratulations to Amanda Gefter. And thank you very much indeed to Margaret and Martine for joining me here in the Cosmic Shed.
1: We'll be back next month with another edition of Physics World podcast, not about books this time, about something else, some other topic from the wonderful world of physics. And you can listen to all of Physics World's podcasts on our website, physicsworld.com.
0: And if you'd like to know more about the Cosmic Shed, visit thecosmicshed.com. I'm off to read ten books, starting with Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.
1: Physics World.